Scripture reading this morning will be from the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, verses 13 through 26. The Apostle Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fitness of rage, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live by this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Inside of the, uh, the bulletin you'll find uh, a, a sermon outline that you can use to, to make some notes and fill in the blank and some things like that as we go through this uh, message. And while you're getting that out and uh, opening your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, I'd say take this opportunity to say uh, welcome to, uh, to all of the folks that are streaming with us right now. And uh, we are glad that you are with us, if not physically, at least in spirit, and are able to participate with us in this assembly this morning. And uh, we're going to pray for you as uh, we also pray for ourselves this morning as we get ready to go into God's Word and to ask Him to, to bless us. And so I'm going to ask you here in this auditorium and at home to bow your heads as we ask God to, to do that very thing. In the silence of, of this very moment, Father, in this very place, we are grateful for your presence, and we are grateful, Father, that not only do you allow us to come to this place in safety or to the places where we are right now to worship and to be reminded through that worship that there is great blessing in relationship with you. That as our Father, our Savior, our Shepherd, and all the different ways that you are revealed to us in Scripture, that you are trying, Father, to help us to understand the greatness of your presence and how you are unique and like no other that we encounter in this world. 
And so, Father, as, as we get ready to study the Word that You have revealed to us through Your Spirit, we're asking in the name of Jesus, in His name, that You bless us with eyes to see and ears to hear. In order, Father, to, to be much more profound and deep in our life in this world, that each day we exemplify Your presence through the way that we conduct ourselves in love, and in kindness, and patience, and all of the different fruit of the Spirit that Bill has just read for us. And so bless us in this way, Father, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're in a series that uh, we're calling The Walk, and it's based on that scripture that's found, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. It's a, it's a piece of memory work that all of us have been challenged to memorize, and, and let's say that verse together. Whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Let's say it again. Whoever claims to live as him, in Him must walk as Jesus did. Uh, last week, we considered when we are called to live as light and, and to walk in holiness, to walk in light, what all of that means. And this week, we're going to take it another step further. And I want to begin with... Um, it, it's, it's sort of an odd, uh, true story, but in the northern, the northeastern part of the state of Kansas, uh, just outside of the capital city of Topeka, 65 years ago, there was um, a, a nuclear missile silo, and that silo housed uh, a nuclear warhead. And some years ago, it was abandoned and everything was removed, and it was just this long, uh, upside-down tower going underground. Well, some, some folks had the idea that, you know, here's this, this infrastructure underground. It might make a unique kind of a structure, and that's what they did. They, they, built, a, they built a living quarters underground. In fact, if you want to rent this place, you can go on uh, the website for Airbnb and look up the Subterra Castle, and you'll find all of the rates to be able to rent this place for a couple of days. And they call it the... Uh, the, uh, the, the Subterra Castle, the mansion underground. And ironically uh, to me, you have this, 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 this huge hole in the ground that at one time housed a nuclear missile that's now a place for people to, to live. And I think, you know, it, it is ironic that here is this weapon of mass destruction that has now been given a new identity as a, as a place of peace and a place of, of residence. And I think that there's a lot of that in what we experience when we, we become children of God, that there is uh, something so destructive about our nature that we are transformed by God through His gospel, through His Spirit, through the Word, through all of the different ways we're going to talk about, into people who have a new identity, and that identity is, is led by the Prince of Peace. When we become children of God, there is something beautiful that happens to us. Our life can be, and, and, and probably this is a bit of an exaggeration, but not much, that our fallen life can be a weapon of mass destruction to the people in the world around us. And after the gospel comes into our life, we become an instrument of peace as the love of God pours into our hearts. And that love pours into the lives of the people around us. That we, because of God's power, through God's 
His will through His power, we become in holiness beautiful. But we need help. And that help comes from God putting His Holy Spirit in us when we become the children of God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, right there in the middle, God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the what? Sanctifying, which is just kind of a, a $10 word that means being made holy. To be saved through the sanctifying or the holy making work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And so in this passage that, that Bill, re, Billy read for us, it deals with uh, walking in the flesh or the works of the flesh and the, the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, we find three really gigantic major ideas that we need to get our minds around this morning. The first is there is a tremendous need for transformation. There is a challenge to that transformation. And the means for that transformation is given to us. When God's redemptive invasion comes into human beings, He gives us His Spirit to help us become the people that we need to be. So we begin with that first point, the need for transformation is real. We say this a lot around here, and it's, I, I think it's absolutely true, and the older I get, the more that I think it is true, that it's easier to grow old in a pew than it is to grow up in the faith. Spiritual maturity is not a given in any human being that responds to the gospel. It can never be assumed. Immaturity is a reality in the church that has to be taken seriously by anybody that takes God seriously. The life of a disciple of Jesus, the life of a Christian is to be a life of growth. And so it brings up kind of an interesting question. How do you measure the spiritual vitality of a church. Well, there are lots of ways that people do that. One popular way that you find in the, the, the research world is through pollsters is they'll ask questions and spiritual maturity is measured on how people respond to those questions. How many times a month do you go to church? Uh, what percentage of your income do you give each year to the church? What do you believe about the, the, the virgin birth? What do you believe about the Trinity? And based on the responses to questions like that, spiritual maturity is gauged. But, I would ask, is a church spiritually dynamic because it answers questions on doctrine and belief one way or another? Now, truth is always important. And that's what we seek and we pursue as we press our mind into the Word of God every day. But you can believe all of the right doctrines, but be as morally messed up as everyone else around you. Have you ever known in your years of, of being a disciple of Jesus, have you ever run across the path of a disciple or, or a Christian, somebody proclaiming to be a Christian, who is selfish or self-centered? Or they have a loose hold on, on the truth. Or their, their sexual life. Belief does not always translate into transformation. And so Paul talks about this and the effect of immaturity on the churches in Galatia. And he says in chapter 5 verse 15, If you bite and you devour each other, watch out. Or you will be destroyed by each other. Now one of the facts about church life is that most of the cans of worms that get opened in a church are opened from the inside. 
a church can devour itself and destroy itself from the inside and that church implode. The church in Galatia that Paul is, is writing to is in, is in huge trouble. They're in big trouble. They, in, rather than loving one another in serving one another in humility, what they're doing is they're biting each other and they're devouring one another. It's quite a graphic picture. But what does it mean? It's a, it's a graphic way to describe how people inside of the church can be ravaged. The idea of biting and devouring is like a pack of animals tearing another animal up. Or you can think about it this way. Think about tiny little toddlers, their teeth are just now popping in. One kid at daycare or in the nursery takes a toy from another kid, and what happens? The teeth pop out. <laughs> and there's a bite, and it causes pain. When you devour something, you are using it completely for your own good, to enlarge yourself. And the tragic alternative to love in the church is where members of the body of Christ begin to absorb people's lives, their brothers' and sisters' lives. Instead of being servants, humble servants, loving servants, one to another, they become consumers. And so I really believe that this, this quote by Philip Kinnison, he teaches at Millican College, wrote a book on the fruit of the Spirit called Life on the Vine. He says, I think it's a true statement, without the Spirit, the church is either an empty and lifeless shell or a horrific monstrosity animated by some spirit other than the Spirit of the risen Jesus. And so that brings us to the challenge of the transformation. And that, that challenge to be transformed is great. And what Paul does in that text that Billy read was to draw a contrast to show the greatness of the conflict that we can never assume this kind of spiritual maturity, this transformation just taking place because there is a conflict that is taking place inside of us. He says it this way in verse 17. The flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit. The spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And he does something very practical. He says, this is what the work of the flesh or the life in the flesh looks like. Sexual immorality. Just following and gratifying the desires of the, of the body. Impurity and debauchery. I mean, you can never say that with sort of an innocent voice, can you? Debauchery. There's idolatry and witchcraft and hatred and discord, and jealousy, and fits of rage, and selfish ambition, and dissensions, and factions, and envy, and drunkenness, and orgies. And what he is doing here is giving us, he's giving us a list to help us to, he's compiling, you know, sort of a composite of what a person looks like when they walk according to the flesh. And then he contrasts what this person looks like with one who has the Spirit of God in their life active and powerful and transforming. He says, they have this fruit that just blossoms in their life. He says, it's love. The opposite of love is biting and devouring one another. It's the factions and the dissensions and the envy. If, if you were to think in a very practical way what it means to love somebody that's a member of our own church family, it would be 
your happiness being uh, put into their happiness, of seeking the good of someone else. He says it's not just that kind of love where you're serving and, and enjoying other people, but it's also delighting in God. There's a joy that comes into your life that regardless of what might be happening to you in your physical and in the physical life and in the material world, there is a joy that is pervasive that you can't explain. Peter says it's inexpressible, but it's glorious when you, when you experience it. And it's not just this joy that comes into lighting in God. And God becomes the treasure. That regardless of whatever is taken away from you, you, you never lose that poise. You never lose that, that buoyancy in whatever turbulent waters you might find yourself because all of your treasure is God, the one thing that can never be taken from you. And that gives you peace. Because yes, there are troublesome times that come and sometimes it seems like these troublesome times are profound and unending. But there is a peace that pushes away the anxiety. And there is a, a, a patience or forbearance, as, as some of the newer translations put it, which is the ability to be wronged in the context of the church by a brother or a sister and not fall apart. It's kindness and it's goodness. It's faithfulness. That regardless of what you might suffer or what setback you might experience in life, you're able to stay put. And there's a gentleness. You know, when you get aggravated and anxiety comes into the world, one of the first things that gets jettisoned is the gentleness. When life seems to be running, riding roughshod over you, you begin to do that yourself but because you're called to holiness. And that holiness can become a reality because of the fact that God puts His Spirit in you to sanctify you. The counterintuitive thing that when life gets tough is to be gentle and to be self-controlled. And all of these are facets of the same diamond. And this is how you're, you know you're growing into that diamond. All of these things, he talks about fruit, not fruits, but all of these virtues that he has described, that is the fruit. All of these things become evident in your life. And one of the ways that you know that you're growing in the fruit of the Spirit and in this spiritual maturity is that people who know you and would say that they know you well would say that, you know, you used to be a grouch, but now you sort of seem uncannily joyful and patient and gentle and kind. They would say that where your life seemed to be a little bit out of control, you seem to be exercising a little bit of self-control. That people are able to see these, these, these virtues, these pieces of fruit in your life. And what they mean is that you're becoming, these are signs of being a child of God. But this, again, is not something that we just grit our teeth and they develop because of, of the, the exertion of our own will, self-discipline over the unruliness of our life. That's impossible and God knows it. And that's why the means of the transformation is given to us. You know how swimming lessons were invented? It came about because people got tired of being, as a kid, taken out in the middle of a river or the middle of a lake in a boat and thrown into the water and sink or swim. 
that way of learning how to swim depended on what was in the person. Their strength, their perseverance, their energy levels. It depended on what was in the person, whether or not they made it out. Now here's the great thing about God. God knows that we can't swim. And because he's a perfect father, and we become his children imperfectly as we may be, he does not throw us into the river of life and say, sink or swim as a disciple. God gives us his Holy Spirit as a precious gift. At the very beginning of the church, this is one of our, our, our most known scriptures as a church of Christ. Peter preaches this sermon to all of these people in Jerusalem, you know, 50 days after the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus. And at the end of the people are just cutting the heart. They understand completely and profoundly that in their own intellect, in their, in their own self-righteousness, they have taken the literal Son of God and have crucified Him. And when they see what they are capable of, they are cut to the heart. And they go, what must we do to be saved? And you know how the scripture goes in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's how the Holy Spirit comes into our life. It comes into our life as a gift. We walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, verse 16, which means that we, we live in, in agreement, in relationship with God's own Spirit. Nowhere do we go in this world without His Spirit. Verse 18, we are led by the Spirit. Verse 25, we live by the Spirit. Verse 25, we keep in step with the Spirit. Peter puts it maybe a little bit more easily understood. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Now, people in the Western world, of which that's what we are, always want to know the details of how these things work. I remember uh, an older gentleman who was a mentor to me in, in preaching. He was a great friend. He was a great friend. And one day in one of our conversations... We started talking about what in the world is that Holy Spirit doing in, in God's Word. And this, this, uh, this, this really beloved brother said that the only thing that he would, ever, he would ever say about the Spirit was that he believed in the indwelling of the Spirit in the Word. That the Word of God, the Bible, was inspired through the Spirit but no further than that. And I asked, why? And he said, that is as far as I can understand it. I should have said, and I didn't, um, but should have said, that I need a power greater than I can understand to turn me into the likeness of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 3, Verse 16, you know, the gift of the Holy Spirit is, is the third person of the Trinity that comes into your life as a power to fortify your life in the family of God. And this is what Paul prays in Ephesians 3. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may what? 
strengthen you with power through his what? Spirit in your inner being. What that means, I don't have a clue. But I believe it to be true with all of my heart. That somehow God's Spirit strengthens and fortifies my life from the inside out in such a way that I begin to look like His child. And as a disciple of Jesus, you walk by that Holy Spirit. And as we've learned earlier, you know, when you say that you walk in the ancient Mediterranean world, it means that, that there's a relationship there. To walk with the Spirit means that you're seeking a relationship. And that you're making time. And that you're, you're cooperating in friendship. And you recognize the common ground. You're in that agreement. Now the Spirit of God in you, discipling you and sanctifying you, is not a quick fix, but it is a deep fix. And so just a, a couple of practical things. You know, in light of the imagery of fruits, agricultural, you know, we ask in prayer God to use His Spirit in us as individuals to cultivate the soil of our heart. Which means we pray for God's Spirit to strengthen us in the inner person, to, to cultivate our heart, to desire the things of God. We ask for all of the fruit, not just the ones that we already have sort of mastered, ignoring all of the ones that we haven't. I've got love, but I don't have the peace. Or I've got the peace, but I don't have the self-control. We ask God for all of the fruit, all of the fruit, which is described in Galatians 5 for us, to be evident in our life. Every day we ask God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control to be evident in our life. And we ask to see clearly those areas of our life where the fruit needs to become evident. You know, you ask me on any given day, I'll tell you, you know, I think I got some of this stuff down pretty well. And I don't see that there's a higher degree of anxiety in my life or less gentleness I mean, do we ever get patience down? I mean, that's always one that we seem to be working on, right? We ask God to see clearly those areas of our life where the fruit needs to become evident, where the Spirit needs to allow us, to, to allow it to work in us. You know, there's, there's something I've been thinking about for a long time. I, I believe it's to be true. I'll, I'll lay it on you this morning. God can only meet us in the places where we repent. The areas where we don't repent are walled off to Him. And God meets us in the places where we repent. And we ask God that His Spirit would sanctify us. When's the last time you asked God through His Spirit to make you holy? Not holier than thou. Not a holy roller. But to imitate God as beloved children to walk in love, to walk in light, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Well, we're going to offer an invitation in just a minute. And you know what that invitation is this morning? It, it's for, for you to do the serious business of evaluating your life and the degree to which you're allowing God's Spirit to transform you into the likeness of God. Are you walking by the Spirit? And we're going to sing a song in just a minute that is going to give you the opportunity as we're praising God to come down to the front and talk to our shepherds about anything that might be on your heart. But before we do that...
Tomorrow is a, a really important day in our nation. We're going to uh, remember and honor the life of, I think, one of the, the greatest Americans who ever lived, Martin Luther King Jr. And um, one morning in November 17th, 1957, King is, is as sick as a dog. And the doctor has come to his house and has advised him, you don't need to get out of your bed that November 17th, 1957 was a Sunday. And uh, King ignored him and said that there was a sermon that he needed to preach. And the doctor said, well, if, as soon as you're done with preaching, you come back and get into bed, that'll be okay. And so he got up and he got dressed and that church on Dexter Avenue that he preached for, he got into the pulpit and preached one of his more famous sermons, one entitled, Loving Your Neighbor. And at the end of that sermon, he said these words. So this morning, as I look into your eyes, and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bend will be transformed and then we will be in God's kingdom we will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies to bless those persons that cursed us to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us and we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us End of quote. I think those are fitting words to end uh, a sermon talking about the power, not just the necessity, but the power of God's Spirit to turn us into the kind of people that are not going around in destructive, with, in, in destructive ways and with destructive words, hurting and dividing and breaking and destroying but to be the kind of people that would say, I would rather die than hate. To know that that kind of love is the kind of love that opens people's eyes to the kind of possibility for life that exists in the gospel of God. That His cross means everything when it comes to change. His resurrection is the proof of it. That there is life that begins now in this life, on this side of death, that is holy and beautiful and winsome and unifying and exemplifies the, the, the very nature of God. And so we're going to give you an opportunity this morning to make that real in your life.
And while we sing this song, we want you to come forward and to talk to these shepherds about whatever might be on your heart. And if today is the day that you give your life to God through belief and repentance and confession and baptism and persevering through prayer and through all of life to receive that crown of glory at the end of time, then today is the day to make it happen. And God will do just that. Let's stand and praise Him. Come, thy fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts said you may be seated first thing out of the chute this morning